few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, and that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and said, and after digging through it, lowered the mat that paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. This morning, I have the good pleasure of welcoming John Dykeman, who's a member of our community. And we were joking even this morning, some people maybe in family ministries would know him more as Eden's dad than John Dykeman. But John's a member of our community here. He's a graduate of Wycliffe College, and he works as a chaplain and a networker for the Christian Medical and Dental Association, CMDA Canada which has 1,600 or more members across the country. And in his role, he's a chaplain to medical and dental students at U of T and networks with people across the country. And if you're around Knox during the week, you'll often see John working in the missions hub. And so it's really great to have him around our church doing the kind of ministry he does. And we're very grateful that you can be here this morning to share God's word with us. So let's pray for John as he brings God's word. God, we are so grateful for John. We're grateful for the way that you've called him to do the work that he's doing right now and grateful for the way that he's been a faithful member of our community while he does this work. And we, we thank you for the way that um, you've spoken to him about this passage and the way that you've prepared in his heart something to share with us uniquely today. So we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you, that the words he shares would be something special for each of us and for our church together. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you all. I'm usually sitting over here with my wife, and uh, we usually have our year-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Eden, back in, uh, in the nursery there. But it's just so great to be with you all this morning, and good to see some, some of my fan club came out this morning, too, which is great. Um, so this passage that we, was read earlier um, will be what I'm speaking on. I'd like to look at the dedication and the commitment of the paralytic's friends 
and how they model what it means to be a good neighbor. I'd like to look at how Jesus, the great physician, exemplifies care for his patient. And I'd like to look, about, look at how Jesus reorients um, this story to be about him and how he reorients our lives. So let's get right into our message. February 2010, 10 years ago, then popular premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Danny Williams caught national and international newspaper headlines. He opted to have his much needed open heart surgery done not in Canada, but in the United States. This specialized surgery was unavailable in his home province. Now usually when something like this happens, um, the patient is usually sent uh, to a, a, a larger urban center, someplace like Toronto where they do this type of surgery. But Premier Williams opted to look elsewhere. He said in an article in the Globe and Mail, I did not sign away my right to get the best possible health care for myself when I entered politics. Now one could deduce from his statement, Canadian healthcare in Danny's mind is not the best possible. Now this would be a black mark on the Canadian health system from the premier of a Canadian province. Rather than going the traditional route of getting a surgery done in Canada, Williams, also known as Danny Million, because of his successful career in business, sought out medical advice from a physician friend in the United States. And this friend directed him to a specialist in Miami Beach. Williams took up his friend's suggestion. Now, because of all this, much backlash ensued from the public. Why didn't he get a surgery done here in Canada? Do we need a two-tiered healthcare system? Those are some of the narratives that you would find in the news. And for some American politicians, Williams' decision was the perfect illustration to point out that Canada's public health care system is flawed. This was a strike against Democrats lobbying for a publicly funded health care. Williams' choice to pursue, quote, the best possible health care created a ripple effect he could have never imagined. Andre Picard, who wrote the Globe and Mail article, cleverly ended the article by suggesting when it comes to healthcare decisions, we ought to make decisions with our heads and not with our hearts. He was getting heart surgery done. <laughs> but this is exactly what all of us do when it comes to matters of serious health. If you're a parent and your child has a serious illness, there is nothing stopping us from advocating for a child's health needs. If it means going to Texas to get the best possible surgery, no problem. You drop everything, you empty out your savings, you maybe lose a few paychecks, no problem, you'll do that. When our spouse is sick, same idea. We cannot bear to see our loved ones sick and we want to do whatever we can to help them get better. We act not with our heads, but we act with our hearts. And this is exactly what we see played out in the story of the healing of the paralytic. Four friends hear that Jesus heals, they go to where Jesus is, bringing their gravely ill paraplegic friend, hoping that Jesus can heal him. And then when they arrive, the entryway to the house is blocked by the crowds listening to Jesus. And rather than going 
the other way like many people would have done. These friends illustrate their dedication and their commitment to their friend. And simultaneously, their trust in Jesus. They do the unthinkable. They climb up on the roof with their paralyzed friend in tow. They dig a hole into the roof and they lower their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Now, climbing on a roof, digging a hole and lowering a paralyzed friend sounds a little absurd to me. Maybe like something you would see in a Hollywood film. But if you know that this is the pathway to health, you could have put a brick wall in front of these guys and they would have found a way around it or through it or whatever under it to get their friend to Jesus. Being led by our hearts will do this sometimes. The dedication and commitment we see in these guys to their sick friend is significant. Healthcare options 2,000 years ago were limited. There were no wheelchairs. This man's friends are his lifeline. Any increase in quality of life was contingent upon others stepping up and into this man's life and wanting the best for him. They carried hope for a better life for their friend. Now, if anyone is wondering what a good model for how we ought to care for those who are sick or marginalized, look no further than these guys. Their devotion to see this man get better. But not only do these friends model what it means to take care of the sick, they model the commitment and dedication God is calling all of us to have for those who don't know Jesus. Friends, our calling as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, is to have the same sort of tenacious attitude that says, Jesus is so important that I will do whatever it takes to get my sister or my friend or my parent or whoever to him. I'll tell you a little story. Once when I finished my undergraduate degree, I moved home with my parents. I was living with them and I was working. I was paying off my school debt. I was heavily involved in my church. But I would say that my main ministry at that time was my ministry to my family. My sister was also living at home, and she didn't really know the Lord. And I prayed for her every day, prayed for my whole family, poured my heart, heart out for them, praying that their hearts would be open to Jesus and that they would be receptive to my sharing. I started hosting young adult Bible studies in my home with folks from our church. And when I started, my sister had no interest in joining, but we continued to meet for weeks on end, and eventually she started to join us. Helps when the person you're trying to reach lives in the home where the Bible study is happening. I started sharing some sermons with her from online, and she developed an increased interest in growing in her faith. One weekend, we were to attend a conference for youth, and we were both there to volunteer. The weekend is basically an evangelism weekend where people hear the message of Christ. I wanted my sister Jane to go because I thought that this would be an encouraging thing for her to come to and help her in her faith. And the day that we were to go, Jane started to feel sick and wasn't sure if she would be able to make it, make it with me. I should clarify that. I prayed for her through the day. And it seemed like her illness was not uh, lifting up. 
But then it was about an hour before we were supposed to go, and I did what I don't usually do, and I pulled my mom aside and said, we got to pray for Jane. I really wanted to come this weekend. Shortly thereafter, after we prayed, she got up, um, and she was well enough to go. And we had a powerful, prayerful weekend, and we grew in our faith. Jane started to get more involved with church, started reading her Bible more often, and talking about Jesus. Several months before I committed to come to seminary to study at Wycliffe College, I tossed the idea out to her that she could come and do an MTS degree with me or something like that. Long story short, she ended up coming with me. I never could have imagined that Jane doing a degree in seminary, but she met with Jesus and it changed her life. Now, I don't take any credit for Jane's transformed life by Jesus, but I cannot help but think that my prayers, my eager sharing, under the umbrella of deeply caring for her and loving her, had something to do with her growing in her faith. Who are those who are around you who do not know Jesus? And is your absolute trust in Jesus compelling you to do whatever you need to do to get them to, to, to Jesus? Like bringing the friends... Uh, bring, like the friends bringing the paralytic to Jesus. Is this the Jesus that we worship? The miracle worker that we read in the story? Is this the one that we're putting our faith in? For the friends of the paralytic, getting their friend to Jesus was the same thing as getting them to health. Jesus and health were synonymous with each other in this story. Now health is a universally sought-after good. It wouldn't take long to research and find every society on every corner of the globe has a system of healthcare, whether it be Eastern medicine or Western medicine or some other approach. Wherever people are sick, health is a good that we strive towards. Our Western society has shifted from a traditional Judeo-Christian worldview to more pluralistic to an increasingly secular worldview. With all of these different influences in our society, it's appropriate to raise this question. What does it mean to be healthy? Loris Calgen, a medical doctor with an MDiv and a PhD in theology, writes in a paper, Christian Practical Wisdom in Healthcare, he says that medicine is increasingly becoming a practice defined by powerful means and satisfying personal wants rather than meeting medical needs and working towards a, a physician-patient agreed-upon goal. Christian practical wisdom, he says, flows from a physician's identity in Christ. He says that health care is best carried out as a goal-oriented endeavor, guided by virtues and principles, and relies on conscious decisions of the patient and the physician. Calgin's friend, Ewan Gallagher, who is an intensive care doc at Toronto General Hospital, says to be healthy is to have peace with, body, peace with God in body and in soul. This is something like what the Bible calls shalom, peace with perfect order. Pastor Timothy Keller says that shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. We cannot be healthy without peace in our soul, and we cannot be healthy without peace in our body. 
The soul's well-being is interrelated to one's mental, spiritual, and emotional health. Health, defined, makes goals possible, and it clarifies expectations. Physicians who work through complicated medical issues such as what to do when a patient is on a ventilator and incapacitated, they are without brain function yet healthy otherwise, this is where we need practical wisdom. Or when a patient requests medical assistance in dying, aka euthanasia, knowing what we are working towards, peace with God and body and soul will help guide those decisions. Okay, so what does this have to do with our story? Well, if what Calgin and Gallagher are saying is true, that healthcare professionals ought to work towards a common goal, being a peace with God in body and in soul for our patients, if this is true, we ought to see this reflected in Jesus, the great physician. So in our story, the great physician is approached by his patient, the paralytic. Now, if Jesus were to cater to the, the wants of the patient, that would mean that Jesus simply heals the paralytic, and that would be all. We would be on our merry way. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 5 says, When Jesus saw their faith, that is, the faith of the friends who lowered the paralytic. Now, nothing could have been more perfect than for the next part of the verse to be, and then he healed them. Jesus saw their faith, and then he healed them healed him. It's a logical climax to the buildup of the story. It would have given the paralytic and the friends what they had come for. It would have been the, the outcome fitting for the valiant effort of lowering the paralytic through the roof. The paralytic could have lived happily ever after. But these guys came not to a healing guru. They came to Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself. And when we come to Jesus, he does not fit nicely into our life goals or our objectives. He is not a convenient add-on who does what we want. Jesus meets us right where we are, in our sin, in our brokenness. And he offers not justice, but he offers grace. And he inconveniently and often uncomfortably calls us into a life we could not live if it were not for his presence and leadership in our lives. Jesus, speaking to the paralytic, says the surprising and perplexing wor words. Son, your sins are forgiven. In this moment, Jesus, the great physician, has the end goal of peace with God, not only in body and in soul and mind. His pronouncing of the forgiveness of sins, mending a broken relationship between the paralytic and God, is the offering of peace within this patient's soul. Shortly after, Jesus commands the paralytic to get up and walk, healing him in body. He models for us the type of health care that Gallagher and Calgen are advocating for. Obviously, a physician cannot pronounce the forgiveness of sins, you guys, um, nor can she proselytize to her patient. However, a physician ought to be considerate of his patient's soul when assessing their health and may be able to direct them accordingly, taking after Jesus. Now, all of us wants peace in our bodies, and all of us needs peace in our souls. 
and Jesus cares for both. Rather than bestowing some kind of justice or something like that, Jesus, like a good friend, offers the opportunity every human being needs, a reconciled relationship between us and God. This came at a great cost, but was nothing short of God's loving will. There's more to the situation. In Jesus' announcement of this man's sins forgiven, Jesus turns the story inside out and backwards. Jesus gives us a window into who he really is. In forgiving the paralytic of his sin, not only does he reconcile the relationship between the paralytic and God, but Jesus is demonstrating a foretaste of ultimately when he dies for the sins of the world on the cross. In his resurrection, we share an eternal life with him. Jesus' forgiveness of the paralytic points to all of this to come. When we come to Jesus, we aren't coming to someone who's standing in for God. We are coming to the all-powerful, almighty, beginning and end, God who does something that we can never imagine. The healing of the paralytic becomes all about Jesus. Not only is Jesus giving us a signpost to this eventual death and resurrection, he announces his authority as one with God. But for the teachers of the law who were taking all of this in, this was blasphemous. Verse 6 and verse 7 say, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God sins but God alone? For Jews, this, blasphemous, this was blasphemous because, as scholar Eugene Boring argues, it was the blurring of the line between the creator and the creature, the denial of God's holiness and claiming it as one's own. The scribe's objection was not a matter of false messianic claims, for there is no suggestion in Jewish tradition that the Messiah will forgive sins. The scribes understand themselves as striving on God's behalf and defending the divine prerogative, end quote. This statement from Jesus is what eventually led to his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. The Jewish leaders thought that they had to protect the Jewish understanding of who God is. They could not fathom that a man from Nazareth could be God incarnate. This was nothing but a destructive blasphemer in their minds. Yet nothing is done to Jesus at this time. Jesus then goes on to heal the paralytic, as I had said, and the paralytic carry, carries out his mat. He, scholars suggest that Jesus forgave this man's sin first and then healed him second to give some legitimacy to the pronouncement of the forgiveness of sin. It was obvious that he had authority to heal, therefore he must have had authority also to forgive sins. That's why he forgives first, heals second, you can see the healing. You can't see the forgiveness of sins. But if you can see the healing, then, oh, forgiveness of sins must be also true. But this healing in body and soul wasn't merely an act of temporary peace or simply giving him the chance to use his legs again. Jesus gives this paralytic a new life. Reminds me of Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. So let's recap our story. 
The friends of the paralytic could not wait to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Jesus offers goal-oriented health care to his patient, observing the needs of, of his soul and body and healing them both. And simultaneously, he, re- he reveals his authority as equal with God and becomes enemies with the religious scholars of the day. And I hope that we can see how we fit into this story. God is calling us to have an act of faith, like the friend of the paralytic, urgently bringing those who are far from Christ to himself, having absolute trust in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we are all like the paralytic. All of us who have come to Jesus. We come broken. We come in need. Whether that be in body or in soul, it's usually loved ones full of faith, like the paralytic's friend who bring us to Jesus. Jesus sees the faith of our loved ones and it moves him. And we all come to Jesus with preconceived wants and expectations of what he's going to do. But Jesus, the great physician, gives us not necessarily what we want, but he gives us what we need, a transformed life in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you've given us the holy scriptures so that we can know who you are. Thank you for this wonderful story. Thank you for the friends of the paralytic. May we be like them. And may we also recognize that we, too, are like the paralytic in need. Would you transform our lives, set us on a new course, as we realize that we are new creation, creations, creatures in you, and to you be the glory, Jesus. Amen.